really one of the high points of the Old Testament, and, and that deserves its own sermon, where Moses says, show me your glory, and then the Lord shows him his glory by revealing his name to him. Uh, but this is the event that leads up to that, Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 17. And hear now the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it and I will send my angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could uh, come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, uh, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See... You say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you you by name and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray if I found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We ask you that you might add uh, to the reading now uh, your blessing to the preaching, uh, whereby the reading and the preaching together might uh, form a collective witness to your word and, and your testimony to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have in chapter 33 is uh, something new. Long we have found Israel at the mountain, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb it is called. And it is at this moment that the Lord says your time here is finished. It's time to move on. The passage begins with a call to depart. And that fact 
that Israel is in that uh, this moment called to depart is in many ways significant. Certainly when we consider what has just happened, Israel's rebellion and then the Lord's uh, the Lord's response and judgment. And it even ends with the sense that uh, that things were not as bad as they could have been as a result of Moses intercession and, and the activity of the Levites, their obedience. But still we read the last verse is that the Lord sent a plague among them and that he wasn't finished with them in the verse before. And it's at that moment, surprisingly, but significantly that the Lord says, I want you to depart from the mountain. And it's here at this moment that many significant things uh, occur leading to what is and, and, and I'm saving this for another sermon. One of the most significant exchanges between God and man in all of scripture. When Moses says show me your glory. And the Lord reveals his glory by revealing his name. I, I am the Lord. Uh, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love. But by will, will by no means clear the guilty. I, 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 I love everything about that. The prayer show me your glory. But then the Lord's answer. But as I say, we'll save that for next time. At the moment, we, we find them at the foot being commanded, the foot of the mountain being commanded to depart, verse 1. Which again is amazing when you consider what we just read. The moment was solemn, it was sobering, and yet the Lord is saying, I'm not finished with you, go on and see what comes next. In the moment of uncertainty and calamity, you could say the Lord was saying, do the next thing. Which is often uh, the advice that people are given. I want you to do the next thing. Only we notice, and this is something I referred to earlier uh, in the passages I read as the backdrop, that the, the command is marked with a new element. The Lord is saying, I want you to go to the land that I'm promising to you, and I'm going to overthrow your enemies there. But uh, the promise is adjusted. Or perhaps we could go even stronger and say the promise is revoked. The Lord promising to go with his people is now saying, I want you to go, but now I'm commanding you to go without me. I'm telling you that Moses will lead you on. My angel will go as well, but you won't find my presence even there in the angel. He is careful to distinguish his presence from the presence of the angel. Uh, so angry was God with the people that he said, if, if I were to go with you and among you, then I would consume you. I would have to. You have become that sinful and that detestable in my eyes on account of your sin. Verses 2 and 3 and verse 5. It's amazing to think, after all that we've read, though perhaps not so amazing when we think of their sin, that the Lord was actually saying that. He was saying, I can't go with you any further. And yet that's exactly what he was saying. The great issue of the text, by the way, is the presence of God. Of the next text, which we'll consider next time, is the glory of God. The presence is the very thing that Israel had lost. And so what we see as a result of that is the people in a state of mourning, which they express, verses 4 and 6, in putting off their ornaments. You think of uh, their great celebration in plundering the Egyptians and wearing these costly ornaments as a token of their favor with God and of their victory over the Egyptians. And yet these were the very things that Israel used to craft the golden calf. And now the Lord is saying, well, he is calling the people to a state of perpetual mourning and penitence. And this is the state in which uh, they find themselves. They take off the things by which they had. By which they had sinned. 
From here, things move in an interesting direction, verses 7 through 11. We see that the presence which was revoked is nevertheless found. And this is another clue that the key idea of the text is the presence of God. Verses 7 through 11 have to do with Moses taking his own tent and pitching it, not just outside the camp, but we read far outside the camp. Even though the tabernacle was meant to dwell in the midst of the people, Moses pitches a tent, his own tent, and that becomes a kind of sanctuary. But the thing that he finds in his little sanctuary is the presence of God. And so that becomes, as we see, the great thing. It is called a tent of meeting, which is another way of describing the tabernacle. It was like a little tabernacle, a little sanctuary. All of these things I'm saying, by the way, I'm summarizing the text. We will explore all these points. But that doesn't resolve everything. Moses is not content. As he goes in the tent and he contends with God, the thing he is still seeking is not just God's presence for himself as he's called to go forward, but God's presence with the people as they are called to follow him. And so all along we find that is the key idea. And it leads to an amazing exchange between God and Moses. Moses contending with God for his presence. And it's only outshone by what follows when he contends with God to behold his glory. Well, let me make these series of observations based upon what we've seen in the text And I would begin here where I began last time, and that is that the emphasis here or the key issue remains what it was in the prior text. We haven't moved past it. This is still the defining element in Israel's life in her relationship to God, and that is the presence of great sin. And let us be clear, there is such a thing as great sin. We haven't moved past this thought. We're still dealing with it. And again, we see the faithfulness of the minister, who is Moses in this case, in his willingness to deal with it, both in terms of his willingness to speak to the people, the consequences of their sin. You now have to live with the fact that God is alienated from you. And he's faithful in saying that to them, but also in his relationship to God as the intercessor and the minister of the people. He recognizes, in other words, that sin needs to be dealt with in all of its facets, both as something that needs to be rebuked when it occurs among the people, but at the same time, uh, that which needs to be forgiven. And Moses' actions are instructive in both regard. His love for the people compels him to both. He does not emphasize one at the expense of the other, but both equally. But there are certain aspects of this point The point, again, being the presence of great sin, the disruptive presence of great sin uh, that we find in this passage that I wish to highlight now. In contrast, or in addition, I should say, to the prior sermon and what I had to say about it there. The first thing that we see about great sin, again, in contrast to lesser sins of weakness, here is the sin of the high hand. Here is deliberate rebellion. Here is idolatry. Here is soul-destroying sin. The first thing I would notice is the consequences of sin, of great sin. What is it, if you think of it, that makes sin so awful once it's been committed? And that's what, where we find ourselves here. The deed is done. And what now? What are the consequences? Well, what makes it so awful is the way great sin drives God away from the presence of his people. It drives him off. Previously, they had enjoyed his presence in remarkable ways. And now the Lord was telling them, 
in their own experience. I will dwell with you no longer. This is something that was true if you think of biblical history of Adam himself. The thing that he enjoyed, the way that he was favored was that he and God walked together in the garden. Is there anything more wonderful than that? And yet that was the very thing that he forfeited by his sin. It wasn't just that he sinned. It was the consequences. It was the aftermath. The way I said, as I said last time, that sin changes things. It disrupts things. And from the standpoint of religion, it is uh, terrible in its consequences. But let me just ask you, uh, because sometimes I think we... We treat God as though he operated differently in the old covenant than he operates now. Do you think what I just said isn't true today? Do you think that sin has ceased to be disruptive? Especially when we're talking about great sin. The reality is that this point is something that speaks to us directly in our own experience. It addresses every believer in his experience of God. And the testimony of every believer, and I don't know of any exceptions, is that I have found in periods of profound rebellion and sin that the thing that I have lost, as David says in Psalm 51, and the thing that I have sought in my repentance is the presence of God. And so you see how this speaks immediately to our own experience, the way in which we find God in his own way, indicating to the church and to individual believers, you've grieved me by, my, by your sin. And there are consequences for that. Consequences that you now have to deal with. And a fellowship that is broken and which can only be restored by a broken and contrite heart. Again, Psalm 51. Is there any experience which is more common to believers than this? But the second thing that I would notice is the sin itself. What was the great sin? Well, we've seen the consequence of it, and we've also seen the way that, uh, or we see at least in the text, the way it puts the people in a posture of profound mourning. But what was it? Well, you see, the great sin in this case had to do with their posture, the way in which they viewed God, the way in which they related to God. And the reality was they didn't relate to God at all. God was speaking to them. He was warning them. He was rebuking them. He was blessing them. But they didn't listen to any of it. The, the, the sin here is defined as being stiff-necked or stubborn. God is saying, again and again, I sought you as my own. But again and again, you turned away from me. You are stiff-necked. You are an obstinate. You are a stubborn people. And may I humbly suggest that there is no sin which is more common to man than this sin. Even in this congregation. No sin which is... Uh, more common than uh, a stubborn spirit. Jonathan Edwards, I was uh, beginning to read uh, the upcoming chapters, and he has a chapter on anger uh, for the men's breakfast. And he speaks of, of sinful anger versus righteous anger. And, and, and when he described this one particular sin, I thought, that's it, that's the stiff-necked person. And we're all guilty of this, at least from time to time. We hope at least this isn't the defining uh, character of our religion. But we can at least confess that we're guilty of it. Sometimes. He says, when a brother rebukes a brother, and the rebuked brother responds in anger, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me I sinned. 
That is an instance not only of sinful anger, beloved. That is an instance of stubbornness, of a sinful stubbornness. But yet again, you see, that's what the Lord is saying here. It isn't just that he spoke once and they didn't listen. It is his repeated and persistent warnings and gestures of love that they repeated over and over again. I sought to correct you. I sought to make it easy, God is saying, and to place you on the right path. But you did not listen. No, you refused to listen. Your heart was set on sin, and so you sinned. Again, the stubborn, obstinate heart that refuses to listen. It isn't open to being rebuked or corrected ever by anyone. There is nothing, Matthew Henry says, more displeasing to God than this. The stiff neck. But let me again return to you. Do you imagine that you are altogether free of this sin? Following along Edwards, I would say, as he would say in his passages, his his lectures from that book, examine yourselves. Examine your heart to see if you are altogether free from this or if perhaps there there are some indications in your life that this sin still clings to you since it is common and natural to all. Test yourself by this. Whether, whether you ever take any direction from anyone else, especially your spiritual fathers, are you open to correction? Are you open to instruction? What about when the Lord convicts you of your sin? Do you have any interest in turning from it? If not, well then I tell you solemnly, you're just like Israel here. And it, you need not wonder if that is your frame in your spirit that God is distant from you. But seeing how much God detests the stubborn, obstinate, sinful heart. Let us together resolve to put such a spirit far away. And to to put on a spirit of repentance. Seeking that meek and humble spirit which knows how to listen. You realize that's all God is saying here. You didn't listen. The voice of God went out. But they didn't hear what, what I had to say. Actually, I I want to read something from Hebrews. Well, uh, I don't need to. It it came to me. When I spoke, they hardened their hearts in unbelief. That's the stiff-necked heart. And that's what we're called to turn from, lest we, like Israel, fall. But the other thing that I would notice about great sin is this. And that is the way, uh, on account of it, that God's people are, are put into a state or a posture of mourning and repentance. Again, if by their ornaments they sinned, let them put off them in their repentance and let them uh, assume a frame. Uh, that's the thing that's really noteworthy here. It isn't, uh, it isn't one repentance, one day or one act of repentance, but that as God is calling them forward, he's calling them forward in the frame of repentance. Kyle and Dillich, from that time forward... They laid aside all ornaments which they had hitherto worn and assumed the outward appearance of perpetual repentance. But then there is the command to depart as a second point. And let me make an observation or two about that. For one thing, and I've already said this, but I want to expand upon this point. We notice that life goes on. Even in the greatest calamities, life goes on. Do the next thing. That's what the Lord is saying. We can imagine that at this moment, that Israel was completely stunned and even paralyzed by what the Lord had done. And even the prospect of what he had promised. 
he, he judged them, he sent a plague, and then he said, I'm not finished with you. You can imagine, they didn't want to do anything. And it's at that moment, in many ways, from her perspective, Israel's perspective, the worst possible moments, moment, the Lord is saying, go forward. And so here the chapter we find is pointing in a new direction. One uh, which I would say is ultimately hopeful. It's an unrealized hope because Israel falls in the wilderness in unbelief. But nevertheless, the words themselves as they are offered to Israel are ultimately hopeful. And so I would say, insofar as this applies to the church, always at every time, even in the worst moments, that life never stands still. That God's message to the church is always, I want you to keep going. He's always calling us forward to press on and not stand still. Uh, to use the language of the Apostle Paul, forgetting what lies behind, but pressing on to the upward call and the prize that is found in Jesus Christ. Uh, something like that. It, that's not an exact quotation. But beyond that, the Lord is saying, and you see, again, this being the key issue, and this is the thing Israel has to cope with. Wait a second, Lord. If you are calling us to go, how could we hope to do so without your presence? And that's really the thing that terrifies Moses and the people. Will you go with us or will you not? We're too afraid to go forward if not. Nevertheless, we see that he is. And because of that, I would say that this is a very hopeful and instructive passage. To see that even in the worst moments... When sin has arisen and God has struck us down, what God has to say to the church is, I want you to keep going. But we also notice in light of that, something about repentance itself, the command to depart and go forward. We recognize that it involves more than we just put on a mournful spirit. In other words, that we feel sorry for our sin. There is something more involved in true repentance. It involves not just the negative, but the positive, an active pursuit of what, what it is that God is calling us to. And Israel would never know true repentance until she found this, which, again, this generation never found. She never repented, really. She might have been sorry for her sin, and we'll grant her that. But actively pursuing what the Lord wanted never occurred. And so she fell in the wilderness, as we know. The next point worth uh, commenting on is the meeting place as we come to verses 7 and following. Which, as I say, is a tent of meeting. It wasn't the tabernacle, but it became a, a kind of miniature tabernacle or sanctuary. And it was here, as I said, that the presence of God that was forfeited now was found immediately. But you see, it was placed outside the camp, far away. As a way of indicating to Israel what she had lost. And reminding her that the tabernacle might have dwelt in the midst of her. Now it dwelt at a distance. And yet in one sense I would have to say it doesn't matter. Because God is still there. And we read in verse 7 that everyone who sought the Lord there found him. Not just Moses. But everyone in the camp had access to the Lord. They just had to go there. That's all it took. And God will not leave himself without some outward tokens of his presence, however small they may be. Even in times of calamity. Even in times when the sin of the church is great. There will be some way and some place to find God. 
And so again, I would notice that in this terrible moment, that the picture is ultimately one which is hopeful. And what do we find in the tent of meeting? Well, for one thing, we see that the pillar uh, of the the Lord, the pillar of cloud, we read, descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And so the glory of the Lord resided at, uh, at the tent of meeting, at this new tent of meeting. Again, what we see is the Lord setting up a little church or a little sanctuary where he might be found by prayer. And so it was, as a result of this, a place that the pious souls were drawn to. We don't know how many, but we know that there were some godly souls among Israel, even though as a generation they fell in the wilderness. There were some pious godly souls who still wanted to know God. And here they were able to do so. They realized, as we realize, better to be with God outside the camp than to be without him inside. Which is where, not incidentally, we find Jesus dying on the cross. Not inside the camp, but outside the camp. And the writer of the Hebrews tells us, you had better go meet with him there. Outside the confines of Judaism and Old Testament religion. If you want to meet with God at the meeting place, which is the cross. But beyond this, as we find Moses then in the tabernacle, or the the, the miniature tabernacle, we find the activity of Moses, the intercessor, the one who prayed with God. The thing that we notice about Moses all through Exodus, the thing that made him such a powerful instrument in the hands of God, even though ultimately he was rejected by the people. And so in human terms, he was an, an utter failure. But the thing from the standpoint of the godly that made him such a powerful instrument in God's hands was we see again and again he was a man of prayer. He knew how to pray. But the thing that is especially noteworthy here is not the prayers of Moses. It it is the way that fact that Moses was praying and meeting with God set the people praying and worshiping. We read that as he went to the tent that the people would stand at the tent at the doors of their tents and they would worship God and they would add their prayers to Moses. You see, what set them praying, again, the pious, the godly, however many there were, was not just that God was there in the tent, but that Moses was. And that's amazing if you think of it. They made their prayers to depend upon the activity of their intercessor. Although perhaps not so amazing when you think of what had just happened lately. The Lord had said to them, you are estranged from me. I will not dwell among you. And they had very little good hopes that God would ever be restored to them on the basis of their own prayers. And yet they found in the activity and the prayers of another good hopes that perhaps things might improve. For Moses, as we read here, was one who was highly favored with God. Unlike anyone that we read of in all of the Old Testament, God spoke to him face to face, which is not to mean that he beheld his face. I remember once I was in confusion about that because we read in the next chapter that the Lord said, you can't see my face. But it is a way of saying that Moses is one with whom God spoke as a friend in a familiar way. Moses was the friend of God, this God who had just lately met and visited the people with judgment. And yet here is one To whom God has said, you have found grace in my sight. One whom I grant a special and a familiar place in my presence. One whom I love. Do you understand why that was so encouraging to the godly? They could not see him entering into the place of meeting. And not be set worshipping wherever they were. To think of Moses in the tent. 
Make me worship God. That's what they were saying. You understand the parallel. Surely your mind has made it. We cannot think of Christ in the presence of God, which is where he is now, and not be set worshiping and praying and praising. You see, again, the point is the same. It isn't just that God is there. In some sense, that doesn't help me, not as a sinner, but to realize that Jesus is there, my intercessor, and to think of his activity there as my intercessor. Well, that is something that gets me praying and worshiping wherever I am. I might find myself far outside the tent. In fact, I do. I have yet to enter into the sanctuary of heaven. But the fact that Jesus is there already is enough for me. It matters not where we are, beloved, so long as he is there. And he is. But the last great point has to do with Moses' intercession as we come um, to verses 12 through 17. Which reminds me of Abraham's interaction with the Lord in chapter 15 of Genesis. Abraham was, as I said, a man who knew how to pray. But you notice what he's wrestling with God for. He's wrestling for assurance. And again, we find something that speaks directly into the experience of a believer. The thing that we most often want is to be sure. To be sure that God is with us and that God will favor us as we go forward. Matthew Henry, when God designs mercy, he stirs up prayer. You see, God had told them he wouldn't go with them. And yet, ultimately, we find that he does. But how does he accomplish that purpose? Not without prayer. And so notice then Moses' prayer in those verses. And again, we find him in the tent of meeting, wrestling with God. Who can doubt that what he asks here is a bold act of faith? He is directly countering what God has just said to him to tell to the people, saying, I will not go with you. Moses was too burdened by that, not at least to bring the matter to God once more. The prayers of Moses were like the man himself. They were daring. They were bold. They were full of action. But I've come to expect such things from Moses. And I've also come to expect such things from God. For such things, and by that I mean such prayers, we see repeatedly in Exodus are highly pleasing to God. He loves the bold and the daring faith of the godly. To ask of him even things that the godly doubts perhaps God is willing to give. And yet we see again and again that the Lord loves to answer prayers. Not prayers that are easy to answer, but that prayers which from our perspective are difficult. He loves to bring difficult and unlikely and even impossible seemingly things to pass by the prayers of his people. He especially, it would seem, using Moses as a model of prayer, enjoys to honor the bold and daring prayers of the godly men. Again, when we pray for that which seems unlikely and perhaps even impossible, God would wrestle with a Jacob and with a Moses to teach them that True strength of character and of prayer is found only in the struggle to obtain what we seek. And so God is pleased to grant what we seek and even beyond what we seek. Oh, but Jesus says, there are so few who seek God truly. Well, not Moses. Moses was ever praying and discovering this about God. He prays first that God's grace would become a reality in that he would show him the way and own his people as his own. As though to say, Lord, I need you to go with me. And the Lord says, I will go with you. Verse 14. Which is an amazing, uh, amazing thing uh, to say, given his prior displeasure. 
Not only that I will own you, but I will own these people. But Moses presses further for further assurance. He wanted to be sure not only that the Lord would go with him, but with them. Or else he says he isn't prepared to go forward himself. And we find the Lord does not hesitate to answer this prayer. I'll do this thing also that you've spoken for you found grace in my sight and I know you by my by name. I will go with you. I will go with the people. The covenant, in other words, which is broken, is restored on the strength of Moses prayers and Moses intercession. And Moses, uh, what he found was assurance and by this assurance, strength to go forward. While at the same time, he recognized that he was reluctant to do so apart from this answered prayer. One of the things that we might notice as well, and we will notice, is that Moses still is not content. He continues uh, with each concession to, to ask for more. He says, well, Lord, I have this one more thing to ask. I want you to show me your glory. He realizes, uh, you might say, that God was in a favorable disposition and he takes advantage of the moment. Lord, if you're if you're so giving, keep giving. And he asked for the greatest thing he could possibly ask for. But we'll save that for the next sermon. For now, we, we, we might just see how much he prevails by prayer and how willing God is to grant everything he asks and even beyond. He assures his servant, teaching us that if we lack assurance, there is a way to find it. And what is more, as we think of Moses in his intercession with God, we have yet another instance of the kind of intercession that Jesus Christ has in the presence of God. God is pleased always to grant what, whatever he seeks because he's always pleased with his person. You found grace in my sight, which means favor. That's what the Lord says to Moses. And because you found grace in my sight, I will grant what you ask, he says to Moses. But do you realize that is uh, precisely what is true of Christ as well? You found grace in my sight. And because I am pleased with you, well pleased, there is nothing too great which you ask of me. Nor is there any reluctance or resistance in my heart to grant what you ask. And what is it that uh, exists in the heart of Christ as he prays and seeks from the Father? When we read that he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. What he seeks always in his intercession is grace and salvation for the elect. And he ever finds it. As he ever lives to intercede, so he ever prevails with God in his intercession. Do you understand why the writer to the Hebrews uh, locates uh, the strongest parallel of the modern church or the New Testament church in Exodus in this moment? Wandering through the wilderness, seeking to find the promised rest. And, and, and the whole of her position depends upon the intercession of one, not the righteousness of the nation, but the prayers of the intercessor. There is one, beloved, who is pleading for us, for our welfare, our guidance, our self-keeping. And there is nothing that he ever seeks from the Father that will be refused to him. And, we, and so we need not ever wonder or worry if the present uncertainty or distress will undo us. We may wander long in the wilderness, but so long as we hear his voice 
and do not harden our hearts in unbelief, then we will not fail to enter the promised rest. And what is more, we will find a full assurance of hope until the end of our journeys, so long as we continue in the way we have set out and do not begin to waver in sin and unbelief as Israel did. To the one who has faith like Moses, God, God's answer is ever. Verse 14. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I will lead you to the place you are seeking, the promised rest. And let that be our confidence, beloved. Whatever, whatever it is that we face metaphorically now in the wilderness, that God is with us and he will lead us to the promised rest of heaven so long as we do not give up our confidence and our profession and hold fast firm unto the end to he who calls us and supports us and leads us on, even Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Amen. And let us respond now to God's word by standing together and singing a pilgrim hymn, hymn number 501.